In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Dead and alive, lost and found. This lesson really is a banquet of contrast. The gift of a parable, and this parable in particular, is that they tend to stick with us. We tend to remember them better than other parts of the Bible because of their brevity and the ways they employ both story and imagery. But the gift of a parable is also its hazard because when a parable sticks with us, we can then fall into the trap of thinking there's just one way to read it, when by definition parables are dynamic, their meaning and impact changes all the time. You may have noticed this already, but our gospel passage for this morning skips a few verses between Luke chapter 15, verse 3, and verse 11. In verse 3, it says, Jesus tells the grumbling Pharisees and scribes this parable. But that's actually not true. He doesn't tell them this parable. He tells them these parables, multiple, more than one. And that's what's omitted in the verses between 3 and 11, not appointed for today. Two more parables. In that in-between space, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, followed by the parable of the lost coin. Yes, dead and alive, lost and found. Sensing a theme? Yet part of what separates the first two parables from the third the parable of the prodigal son, the parable for today is its length. In fact, I invite you to take out the pew Bibles in front of you and turn to pages 59 and 60 in the New Testament. So I'll give you a moment to find that, pages 59 and 60. Now, do you see where the parable of the prodigal son begins on verse 11? What you might notice is that that parable is nearly two, if not three times as long as the two parables before it. I bring that up because I think that's part of what makes this story, the story of the prodigal, so special. There's a lot more detail here than in any of the other parables Jesus tells, and those details lend richness and beauty and depth. I've made the point with the Bibles, you can put them away if you want. <laughs> First among those details that I love is the word from the Pharisees and scribes that prompts Jesus's response. Look at this man, they say. He not only welcomes sinners, he eats with them. What a great relief for all of us and a great way to begin a story that ultimately ends in a banquet and a lavish feast. The next part of the story I'm sure you know. A man has two sons and the younger of the two asks his father for the share of his property that's been promised to him. The son essentially wants an advance on his inheritance and not just some of his inheritance, he wants all of it. Days later, in possessing his share of his father's wealth, the young son sets off for a distant country and wastes little time before he starts wasting his money. 
He falls down a rabbit hole of decadence and dissolute living until his mistakes are compounded by bad luck in the form of a famine, making his poor choices even worse. Pushed to the brink of survival by a deluge of wayward decisions, the younger son then takes a tiny step back in the right direction. He gets a job. Granted, it's not a job most people would want, but it's a job nonetheless. He gets hired by a citizen of that distant country to feed their pigs. And it is there amongst the swine, sitting jealous of their food, that we come to my second favorite detail in this story. In verse 17, we're told that the younger son came to himself. He came to himself. What does that mean, I wonder? Does it just simply mean that he came to his senses? Or does it mean that he finally paused long enough to confront who he actually is? Does it mean that he felt remorse, even a tinge, even a hint? Or does it mean he's just woken up to the realization that, you know what, I bet if I go home, I can at least have it a little better than this. Maybe he's just looking out for himself one more time. Well, as we know, the younger son does start to make his way back to his father's house. Remembering that even his father's hired hands are faring better than he is at this point, he thinks about what he will say in the moment of reunion. Father, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Call me something else. Call me something less. It's at this point that we reach my third favorite detail in this rich and wondrous story. As the younger son is making his way back, we're told that the father sees him when he was still far off. And more than that, we're told that the sight of his son fills the father with such joy and compassion that the father runs to him. The father runs to him. He makes the first move, not the other way around. In a moment illustrated by countless works of art, the image on the front of today's bulletin being one of them, we get to witness a profound disclosure from God, a disclosure that the Father's love is like this Father's love, abounding in mercy, steadfast, even while we wander. Captured by the words of our Eucharistic prayer, we're told that this love, this astounding love, welcomes us to the banquet, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. Not weighing our merits, huh? You know, to be honest, I'm not sure that I like that. And I'm not sure that the older son in today's parable likes it either. If you're anything like me, you can probably relate to our bitter brother. Father, I can't abide this. I can't come join your dancing and your singing because I'm so angry with this scene that I can hardly see straight. Does my faithfulness mean anything to you? Have you not seen how hard I've worked and for what? I've honored and kept your commands and there's been no fat calf for me, not even a young goat, he says. It can be a tough pill to swallow, but the father's response remains. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine belongs to you too. But today we had to celebrate. Today we needed to rejoice 
because in this weary world of ours, there is so much death. But what we have witnessed here, here in this place, is the eternal promise of the scriptures, the promise that life always wins. And thanks be to God when it comes to that life, that true and everlasting life, you don't have to earn it because you never could. Speaking to one of the parables that comes before this one, Bishop Robert Barron asked the question, why would God fret over one lost sheep or one lost coin or one lost soul? And to that question, he responds with a word from St. Catherine of Siena. God frets because it's his nature. It's what he does. God frets because he is pazo de amore, Paso de amor. He's crazy in love. Why would God fret over one little soul? Why would God fret over us? God frets because God is crazy for you, head over heels. God frets because God loves you with a reckless abandon. God frets because he loves you as if you were the only soul in the world. A few years ago, I heard a sermon that Bishop Gene Robinson gave at the National Cathedral, and he put it this way. He says, I have a magnet that sits on my fridge, and that magnet says, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And what he says is that that's the miracle. The miracle is that God loves all of us, and simultaneously the miracle is that we're all his favorite. We're all his favorite, and God is simultaneously crazy in love with all of us, to the point that if any of us ever went missing, as we often do, that God would run after us with a reckless abandon, crazy in love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.